Retreats are challenging. I'm sure if you've been on retreat before, you know that for a fact. And if this is your first retreat, I'm sure you had some sense of that, just knowing you were coming into a silent, seven-day intensive period of practice. But the interesting thing about that is they're always challenging in ways other than those we expect. We think we're going to come on a retreat and it'll be like this. We'll work on this issue or this will be challenging or this is what will come up for us or we'll open to this kind of insight. And what I've found is that it very rarely happens that way. Whatever we expected, it will be different from that. I have a a good friend who's been teaching for many years and practicing for many, many years longer than that, who recently went on quite a long self-retreat. And in talking about it, he said, I knew not to not to expect anything. I knew I couldn't expect what would happen. But still what happened was unexpected. (laughs) He said he was just mystified. What happened is in this long retreat, he um, uncovered deep levels of grief and sadness and spent a lot of his retreat crying. And this is after, I said, 20, 30 years of practice. They're always unexpected and always challenging. So this is a talk to open you to that possibility of the unexpected challenge. And part of the challenge of this retreat is that it's a metta retreat, different from vipassana, very different in some ways from vipassana. If you've done vipassana before and feel quite comfortable in the technique, the practices of mindfulness, coming here to a metta retreat, if this is your first one, you can feel like a beginner again. You can feel really adrift at sea. What, what is going on here, you know? And why does it have to be so busy and so noisy in my head and so full of effort? You know, Sylvia, I think, said last night, you know, can't I just do mindfulness for a few moments just to cool out a bit and, and, and drop the effort or the, 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 the busyness of the phrases? I think it's actually great, though, to feel like a beginner again. We really have to find our way through this practice. We can't automatically take everything we've learned from our Vipassana practice and apply it, though of course many things do. There are many, many similarities. But at certain basic levels, it's quite different. So just to open up to that fact that we are beginners again. In fact, we're always beginners. As I said, at every retreat, we don't know what will happen. We have to be open to all possibilities. If we try to limit our experience through expectations, it'll just cause us suffering because it doesn't happen as we expect. And we also can find ourselves on somewhat unfamiliar territory because we're doing a concentration practice, somewhat different from a mindfulness practice. In mindfulness practice, we're opening to whatever arises, the, the changing play of our experience. In a concentration practice, we take one object, one focus, and we come back to that again and again, actually keeping away, not turning to, not opening to, all the other aspects of our experience. So it's a very different practice in that way. And also, we're often entering into uh, the terrain of the emotions. Even if nothing in particular is happening, us, and it's certainly not that things have to happen for us in the terrain of the emotions, 
but just the words themselves of matter obviously turning our attention in that direction again and again, the words of love and kindness, etc. It can be unfamiliar in that we're spending our time inclining our mind towards the wholesome. Many of us spend a lot of that time of our internal world in thoughts that are negative, that are self-critical or judging. We're actually more used to that familiar terrain of the, of the, the um, unskillful thoughts, the unskillful mind states. And that often also is what accompanies us to the metta retreat as we begin to practice. So I'd like to talk tonight about the challenges in metta practice, the obstacles, the things that seem like, seem like, I want to emphasize that, they get in the way of our practice. Metta is um, part of a series of practices called the Brahma Viharas. There are four of them. You may have noticed the names of the buildings, the four residential buildings. They're named after the Brahma Viharas. Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Unupeka. Loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Each one of these has its own uh, unique practice to support and cultivate it. And each one also has what's known as the near and far enemies. A near enemy of something, a near enemy is something that looks like the quality, masquerades as the quality, but isn't it exactly. And a far enemy is obviously something that's the very direct opposite of that quality. For metta, the near enemy is attached love or conditional love. And the far enemy is anger or ill will, aversion. Metta, as well as being a concentration practice, is also a purification practice. And just hearing that, you might have a sense of what's involved. We don't come here to purify our joy or our love. It's the difficult qualities of our hearts and minds that we work with, that we purify, that get transformed in the metta practice. Because when we turn our mind towards metta, when we we enter into this practice, repeating the phrases, cultivating this feeling, often what we experience are the obstacles to that feeling, to that experience. What we feel often are these near and far enemies, of our desires and our aversions. And though this can be painful, you know, we come here wishing to practice metta, to cultivate the loving heart, and here we are broiling in aversion or stewing in lust or desire. This is actually where a lot of the practice takes place. Because it's only when we open to and acknowledge these forces, when we see them clearly, when they're in the light of our experience, that we can actually begin the process of purification of them. We can start to see when, we, when they arise for us in our meditation practice, in this, in this atmosphere of openness and inquiry that can be our metta practice, how conditioned these experiences are, these stories we tell ourselves of who we are and what our world is like 
we can see the conditional nature of those experiences, that they're not truths in and of themselves. But when they arise for us, it feels like a tremendous struggle. It feels like an obstacle. But they're actually often great opportunities, valuable fuel for insight, to be willing to open to these difficulties and name them, accept them as our current experience, and work with them in this field of metta practice. Opening in this way to these difficult states of mind and heart actually can lead us to this deep and powerful understanding that it's not what we're experiencing that matters, but how we're holding it. So all sorts of difficult things can arise for us, will probably arise for us in some shape or form, but if we can open to them and hold them in whatever way we can of um, metta or even acceptance, the transformation and the purification can then begin to happen. So I'll speak first about desire, that near enemy of metta, the kind of love that masquerades as metta but is not truly it. It comes in many forms. It can come in the form of attachment, where, which is a kind of love that's flavored by fear or grasping or conditional love, where there's a bargaining kind of nature involved. And some of these, you know, it sounds obvious, or they they can seem gross when I say them, but they can operate on very subtle levels. So the conditional love of, I'll love you if you love me, that needs something in return. If you'll be this way for me, do this for me. Or the selfish kind of love that's focused on my needs, my wants, what I need to get out of this relationship. How can I make this work for me, where that's the priority? And then, of course, passion and lust, those strong forms of wanting that are exemplified in so many of the songs of this day and age. You know, I'll die if I don't get you. You know, the songs that talk about possession, as though that's the highest form of love, that, that wanting to merge so much that it's death if the loved one isn't, isn't present. It's not the kind of love we're talking about here. Actually, a little while ago in the staff room at another retreat, um, for some reason the staff and I got to talking about romantic love and sort of our visions of the highest states of romantic love. And uh, someone said, oh, you know what I've always wanted is for someone to be in a relationship where they just said, I'll fly down and pick you up. You know, they had their own private plane and they would just fly down and swoop me up. And someone said, oh, you know, that happened to me. And we all went, oh, really? You know, someone said, I'll fly down and we'll fly off to somewhere. And it sounded so great. And so we said, what happened? And she said, oh, you know, it turned out he was a drug dealer or something. It just really didn't work out. That's what happens when we get into this kind of love that's blinded by the wanting, by the grasping, by some illusion of how love can be where reality doesn't really come in. But metta in its purest form is very different from this. It's unbounded. It's not limited by form or time or space. And it's unconditional because it truly accepts ourself or another as they are, exactly as they are. 
and it's universal. It's not just restricted to those we know and love. It really can be open to all beings in all forms. So this kind of love, attached love, can bring us temporary satisfaction, that's for sure. It can be a real high to experience this kind of love. But metta has the power to permanently transform our minds and our hearts in a much more profound way than these limited kinds of love that I've just been talking about. So how do we know when we've moved to this near enemy of metta, this attached, conditional kind of love? So anytime you feel there's a, any kind of fear or contraction or conditionality about the experience, anytime there's some sort of limit to the experience of self or other in this, if the thought comes, what if this person changes? What if they do this and not that? What if they don't love me back? Or any se- definitely any time there's a wanting to control someone else, to have them be a certain way or have them fulfill some need of our own rather than just letting them be who they are. I recently saw this cartoon by Matt Groening, which is called Life in Hell. I don't quite know why it's called that, but you sort of get a sense as you read the cartoon. Do you know the one where it's the two chaps talking to each other with the funny little hats? And they're identical. People know Matt Groening. He's got a rather weird sense of humor. So it's these two funny little chaps who look identical, but one is talking to the other. And it's interesting that they're identical because in actual fact it's you know, self talking to self. But here are the panels as they go. So There's just one person talking. All I want is a committed relationship, which of course means you must put me ahead of all others. You must do things for me. You must think only of me. You must give me neck rubs, back rubs, and foot rubs. You must agree with me on every subject. You must do what I want to do. You must watch movies I want to watch. You must be unhappy when I'm unhappy. You must pick me up at the airport. You must meet me at the gate, not down in the passenger pickup area. You must let me drive. You must let me hold the remote control. You must laugh at all my jokes. And then he says, well, and the other person says, I just remembered I'm taking a sudden trip to Iceland starting right now. Bye. And the first guy says, I don't understand. How can we have a committed relationship when he forgot to leave me his forwarding address? And again, I mean, cartoons make things seem all over, over obvious, exaggerated. But there can be subtle underlying, underlayings of that in many of our relationships. You know, where it works when we're getting our way. It works when the other person is agreeing with us or doing what we want to do. And true love is not like that. So as we work today with the benefactor and the next days as we open up to the dear friend, it's actually recommended that you don't pick someone that you might be sexually attracted to. Just because it it makes a relationship complex, and you remember one of the things we said about the benefactor, is to pick someone with whom the relationship is fairly simple, and just adding any form of sexual attraction can definitely complicate things. So we recommend that to avoid that pitfall. But even if you've done that, we can still find ourselves spinning out in fantasies of the benefactor, especially if they're in some kind of um, role of a teacher, you know, 
what if they think, you know, I'm special, you know, or spending time with a teacher or having them acknowledge you in some way. All of these kinds of thoughts, you, if you notice them, it's when you've fallen out of just true metta and you're into some kind of attached or conditional love. So how do we work with this tendency that we all have? It's a very natural tendency. The first and primary thing, as always, is to notice that it's happening. Be aware and willing to acknowledge that this is the current experience, these kinds of thoughts, this kind of feeling of contraction or wanting. And we can go to our Vipassana practice, so we actually stop the metta just momentarily and check in, see if that's actually true. It's helpful to sometimes use the noting practice of fantasy or attachment or wanting just to put um, a break on that tendency of mind, that train of thought. It's certainly not necessary to beat yourself up or judge yourself for having these kinds of thoughts. These forces have been with us for a long time, for eons, for lifetimes. All we're wanting to do is learning to work with them skillfully, to see what they are, to know them. I was sitting with a wonderful teacher, actually I think we all did last year, Ajahn Sumedho, who really impressed me deeply, and especially his way of working with the difficult emotions, the kalesas or the hindrances, he was so light about them. He would say, you have to know attachment to know non-attachment. You can't know non-attachment until you've been attached and let go. So it's actually a valuable part of our practice to know this experience, to accept it, acknowledge it, and then to work with it skillfully. But we have to know it first. That's the key. And for most of us, we have to accept that in some relationship, some form of attachment is almost inevitable. The relationships of partner or a child and parent, intimate relationships. So the, the, the practice is to learn to work with this force skillfully, to see the ways it actually limits the relationship rather than allowing it to flourish, how it doesn't let the other person fully be themselves, or ourselves fully be ourselves, and work to balance that, work to open to that. Because attachment actually isn't inevitable. It can lessen with time and practice. I don't know if any of you are regular readers of O magazine, Oprah Winfrey's magazine. I'm, I'm certainly not, but we actually have, um, what would you call it, a, um, an infiltrator, a, a, a provocateur or something? The editor-in-chief of O Magazine is a Vipassana practitioner, and she's been seeding the magazine with people from um, our tradition, our scene. So Sharon Salzberg and Sylvia have been in there um, giving this great advice that's basically Dharma to all of the readers of O Magazine. The latest contributor was Joseph Goldstein, who wrote an article on love. if you know Joseph, he, he's not someone you would immediately think of to write an article on love for O Magazine. But it was great because what he talked about was the possibility of opening to and experiencing a love that wasn't attached. And that's actually a very subversive mag- message for a women's magazine. You know, if you read just the cup, co- you know, you see the covers in the, you know, supermarket, you don't even look inside. How to get your man, you know, how to make this work, how to get what you want in a relationship is more the usual message that comes out. 
And it's so amazing to see Joseph there in this magazine, read by millions of people, talking about the possibility of unattached love being the greatest fulfillment, the highest happiness. The next um, of these difficult mind states that we often have to work with is um, aversion. The force of not wanting in the mind. It's a far enemy of metta and can manifest in many ways, irritation, um, ill will, etc. Whereas desire is actually quite a seductive obstacle, you know, even though it's, it's taking us off the path a little from our metta practice, it often feels quite good to get involved in it. But aversion really is, is very painful, usually. I mean, sometimes we get a kind of energy from it, a righteous indignation. But often, or if we take the time to look and really feel, it's quite painful. But metta practice can actually send us in this direction. It's, it's, it's not mysterious. As we sit here wishing ourselves or others well and wanting them to be happy, wanting ourselves to be happy, um, the opposite feelings can very naturally arise. It can be towards ourselves or even towards someone who was previously dear. You know, the, if, as, a, as we spend time with someone, the little irritations of the relationship can come up. You know, it's like any intimate relationship. We bring this person into our space. We, make, we, we open to them. And we hopefully see them in their fullness. And all of the stuff that's difficult will probably come up for us at some point or another. So the things that they irritate us about them, or the time they let, let us down, especially when we start with a person. I don't know if you've noticed that. The stories come up. Every time we change categories and you pick a new person, the first few sittings will be filled with a lot of our stories about this person. It's a very natural process. Again, the instruction is seeing if you can let those go and always coming back to the metta, but just to know that that will probably happen. And so it's a reason why we start with the benefactor, why we start with someone that we have a fairly simple, easy relationship, someone who when we think of them, we go, oh yes, of course, this person. And our heart just naturally opens. Even in those relationships, though, as I say, some difficulty can arise. But again, this is where the practice really comes into effect, where the learning can take place. A lot of the arising can be around feelings of our own lack of self-worth, lack of self-acceptance, whether we're doing metta for ourselves and we're saying, may I be happy? and we feel we're not happy, or we're looking towards someone else and wanting to give them love and thinking, who am I to give this person love? Who am I to think I can feel this kind of feeling of metta? And we sabotage ourselves with these kinds of thoughts. And it can sometimes become in our metta practice that the parts of ourselves that we don't like or the flaws in the other person are actually all we see. It becomes like a stain on a, a, a something we're wearing or something we've made that all we see are what's wrong rather than looking for what's good and what's true and what's right. 
Because when our intention is to practice metta, to be, to cultivate this state of kindness and happiness and contentedness, it's like shining a bright light. I said to some people today, it's a really bright light. It's like those Hollywood searchlights, you know, with a million candlewatt beam into those areas of our life that are difficult, that maybe aren't working so well. Because we say, may I be happy? And this voice very quickly answers, I'm not happy. You know, I didn't sleep well last night, and I didn't like breakfast, and I don't like my yogi job, and, you know, the person next in the room next to me snores, and whatever it might be. It's, 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 you know, it's very uh, obvious that if we try to incline the mind in this direction, whatever is going to get in the way will come up for us. It's inevitable that this will happen. Or we can touch into deeper um, aspects of our life or our being, deep sadnesses, losses, griefs and hurts that perhaps weren't so conscious. But as we turn the mind to metta, as we look towards the happiness, we see those places. They come to light. We open to them. Or we say, may I be safe? And the thought comes, but I don't feel safe. I've never actually felt safe. What, what on earth could it mean to be safe? I don't know what that is. <coughs> and so we open to that as well and work with that. And seeing, see if in this moment we can find the space of safety. We don't have to, we can't create an aura around us that pushes everything away to create that kind of safety. But in the moment, we can feel safety as we practice, as we open to these feelings. The judging mind is a really common manifestation of the far enemy of metta. I don't know if this has come up for any of you so far today, but it's such a pervasive mind habit. It's that habit of separation that sees others as different, and uh, and either judges them or judges ourselves in relationship to them. You know, whatever it is, on retreat you can see how you pick on such tiny things to judge about. The mind just wants to latch on to something. Minuscule things can be the fuel of endless judgments. But metta is actually a wonderful antidote to judging because the aim of metta is to hold all beings equal. So if you notice you're getting into a judging state about someone else or yourself, seeing if you can just offer a phrase of metta in that situation, it really is a wonderful balm to that sense of separation that that leads to the judging mind. Because we're often usually our own harshest judge and critic. You know, we judge ourselves far more vociferously, far more vigorously than we do other people. We would never talk to anyone else the way we talk to ourselves in our own minds. And if we can just acknowledge that, if we can just become aware of that pattern and be willing to interrupt it with a thought of metta, it can be really transforming. It can make an amazing difference to to us. So it's important to see these judging thoughts as just that. They're just thoughts. And the less we believe in them, the less impact they have on us. 
the more we believe in us, in them, they can just really completely change our reality. We buy into them. But if we just see them as another thought that's passing through the mind and can be let go of, and that we can redirect our attention, our intention back to metta, can be amazingly transforming. When I did my first long metta retreat a number of years ago, I didn't know what to expect, just as I said when I started this talk. It was a really new practice for me, but I applied myself diligently, and my concentration was deepening um, over the weeks. But I wasn't feeling a huge amount of metta feeling. I'm not a very emotional person, and I felt a lot of warmth and kindness, but you know, you sort of had this expectation, as we all do, of some glowing experience that'll just fill you completely, and I certainly wasn't getting that. And reporting this to my teacher, you know, it's going okay, this is what's happening. And finally, after about two weeks um, of reporting this kind of thing, my teacher said, look, why don't you try doing this instead? Do, do this for a change. In a very um, neutral kind of way, but I came out of that interview just convinced that he'd given up on me. You know, she said, she's never going to get this. Why don't I just see if that maybe will work? And I just went out to my walking place, and I was just stewing in this, you know, I'll never get this. Why did I even try? Why did I think I could come on a meta retreat and do meta? It's going to be a failure. I'm going to have to leave or, you know, go home and tell people, no, I no meta, nothing works. <laughs> you know, I'll never love anyone. I'll never be lovable. You know, the, all of the thoughts you can have, they were just totally going through my mind in a way I was very familiar with, very self-critical, very self-judging. And as I got to the beginning of my walking path, something happened that I can only define as a moment of grace, where I just saw that whole pattern, that whole tendency, and saw myself standing on the edge of the abyss. Sylvia talked very nicely about the well. Well, this was more like an abyss. (laughs) And it wasn't one that echoed back, you know, yes, you're safe and happy. It was uh, one that seemed quite bottomless. And I saw how I could, I was just ready to go down into that abyss of self-judging and just stew in there for as long as it seemed necessary. You know, just be full of misery and self-hatred and and, uh, restlessness and boredom and the whole story. But what came to me is that at some point I would come out of that because I remembered all the other times I'd been on a similar trajectory. And how as bottomless as that pit seemed, and as much as when I was in it, it seemed inevitable that I would stay there, at some point something shifted. And I did come out, and that mind state lifted. And I just thought, why not just go from here to there and not go down into that abyss and be in that state where it's lifted? And I realized I had a choice, and I could actually do that at that time. I had enough concentration and awareness to just say, this is who I am. I can't do any better than this. Again, as Sylvia said, I couldn't be any better. I certainly didn't feel better in the sense of good, but I couldn't be any better. I was as I was. And unless I was prepared to accept that, I had to go down into the abyss. And I didn't want to go there. I knew it would be a waste of time. So I just decided to step around it, to go across it, And so I continued my practice. It didn't immediately transform into having great feelings of metta or love or bliss, but it deepened, and at times quite profoundly deepened. 
And that insight has, has been um, such a godsend to me. I, I've relied on that so many times in the past, so I share it with you of that possibility, if the awareness is there, of the seductiveness of that tendency of mind, and how it doesn't really get us anywhere except down into the abyss, and that we, we have the choice with awareness, with acceptance, to just not go there to step back. A really helpful antidote to this tendency is to practice metta for oneself. If you spent the whole retreat, in fact your whole life, practicing metta for yourself, for one thing it wouldn't be selfish, because it would transform you, and in that transformation you would affect everyone you met. But it can be amazingly powerful and healing to do that. And the phrase that I like to work with when I'm just focusing on sending metta to myself is very simple, but very powerful and challenging. So I'll suggest it to you. If you you wish to take it up, you can, or you certainly don't need to. But it's just a simple phrase. May I love and accept myself just as I am. And just to say that over and over again and feel what that would feel like even if it's not happening in this moment, to feel what that would feel like, to love and accept myself just as I am. So the important thing again with the far enemy is to know that it's present, to be aware of it. And so that's where our mindfulness practice comes in. We have to know what's happening be willing to acknowledge it. With all of these obstacles to our practice, the most important thing is just to keep the phrases going, to keep the practice going. They have amazing transformative power, even if at the moment they don't seem that. They seem ineffectual or or superficial. They seem as powerful as, may I have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? (laughs) They actually do work, and the willingness to say them, even if, excuse me, there's no metta feeling there, or there's the opposite there, the willingness to continue saying them can be transforming. Because as the Buddha said in the Dhammapada, hatred cannot coexist with loving-kindness, and dissipates if supplanted with thoughts based on loving-kindness. They actually cannot coexist. They may alternate very quickly, but they cannot coexist. And if you create and sustain the intention towards the metta practice, it will transform the difficulty. I don't say how long that will take, but it will eventually. And again, this is a purification practice. This is the process happening to bring up these difficulties in all of the different forms. And as I say, we can't know what form they might come up, but it is the practice working. So we can go back to the basics of the practice. When we're lost in aversion in all those different forms, irritation to self-judging, difficulty, the basics are getting in touch with our wish to be happy and our essential goodness that we started the retreat with or the essential goodness of the person to whom we're sending metta. Again, just to redirect the mind. And one of the, the, the powers of metta practice, one of the things I really got out of it, 
we're seeing this possibility that we can redirect the mind. We can decondition the mind from aversion and hatred, and we can recondition it towards metta and kindness. It is possible, and you might experience that in this very week. Once we progress through the categories, if you do find difficulty with a particular person, go back to an easier object, whoever that might be, wherever the juice is. If, especially if you're with a neutral person or the difficult person, you go back to where it's easy. But if you really feel overwhelmed by some state, some experience, then you can use your Vipassana practice, mindfulness practice, of just experiencing this very fully, very directly, of heat or burning or tingling or tightness, naming it, anger, irritation, um, wanting, frustration, whatever it might be, and stay with that until it subsides. As soon as you feel ready to come back to the metta, that's the most important thing, come back to the phrases. There are many other kinds of obstacles to our practice, our metta practice. One you might have dealt with a lot today is traditionally known as sloth and torpor. (laughs) Our old friends, sleepiness, dullness, fogginess, drowsiness. On the first days of retreat, really common to experience these. We come out of a busy life, we often don't get enough sleep, and it's very peaceful here and there's not a lot going on. Um, so we, it's, a, it's very easy to fall asleep, and even more so with metta practice, because it is a concentration practice. And as the mind steadies a bit and focuses around the phrases, and some level of agitation or restlessness diminishes, it's so easy to go into dullness, to go into sleepiness. But these first days of the retreat, not to struggle with that too much, as I say, it's quite common for this to happen. Over the next few days, we may give different instructions and talk about balancing the energy. But to take some naps today, or even tomorrow, if if you feel a need, so you can come into the hall and practice and be fully committed. So you can do the walking. Better to to take care of the body and mind so that when you're awake and alert, you can really be there and be present. But there are some obvious things that we always say about working with sleepiness and dullness. Um, A simple thing is just to open your eyes and practice with the eyes open, brings energy, you know, to look towards the light, especially, that brings, uh, it raises the energy. Make sure you're sitting up straight, take a few deeper breaths, so the body is filled with air and filled with oxygen and energy, or just simply stretch up and, and, and get some energy in the body that way. You also don't need to go as slow on a metta retreat as a vipassana retreat. So you can keep the energy up in the in-between times. It's not to say you need to tear around at breakneck speed. You know, some um, meditative sense of moving is helpful, but you can keep the energy up in that way. And also in the walking, I just usually pick one speed. You know, it's it's not quite as fast as a, a perhaps a regular pace walking, but it's a, a steady pace just to keep the energy up. And you can also do standing meditation. The wonderful thing about metta that I really like when I practice it is how seamless it is. 
because the object doesn't change no matter what position we're in. Sitting, walking, standing, lying down, we're doing metta practice, we're focusing on the phrases. So it's just very seamless, you can just stand up and continue. And it's much harder to fall asleep when you're standing up. Not impossible, but much harder. Another of the challenges can be restlessness. It's like the, the, the mirror or the, the opposite of the sleepiness and drowsiness. And it's amazing how they can alternate. We can go between being deadly dull and then just really agitated and, and wishing we could just jump up and tear out of here and do something different. I, was, uh, I, I often go to visit Australia where I'm from and I have young nieces and nephews there and one who is just so full of energy and when we take her to the playground it's like you know the energizer bunny just gets loose you know or like the family circus cartoon where it's you know from one thing to another and just up here and down there and hold me and push me and whatever it is and you know when you're with a child like that you can't say sit down and I'll read you a story it just doesn't work you've got to go with the energy that's there and the same with our practice, to see if we can channel the restless energy into our practice, use that to, to fuel the metta phrases, or expend it a little in some walking, um, so we balance the energy. Or feel it, feel it in the body. Know that it won't kill you, even though it sometimes feels like it might, out of its vibrational energy. But really explore it and, and use it as an aid to the practice. Restlessness in metta often manifests in the spinning out of fantasies, these stories that I talked about a little earlier, you know, in relationship to ourselves. You know, wouldn't it be great if I go home and everyone thinks what a loving person I am and I've really been transformed or, you know, my benefactor, it's going to be so great, they're going to see me and I know that I'm really impacting them and they'll feel so good about this. Um, That's restlessness. Just to note it, you know, oh, it's restlessness and see if you can come back and steady just with the simple phrases. But often what happens to the phrases when we're restlessness, we end up with what I call meta-muddles. I don't know if you've had any of those yet, where you're trucking along quite happily and then you think, what was that I just said? <laughs> and there's some distortion of the phrase, which you know has probably been going on for a while, like some of mine, may I be filled with leaves, you know, instead of, you know, okay, may I be free on Sunday. <laughs> instead of may I be free of suffering or, you know, may I be free from something. If you notice the phrases are getting a little garbled, it's a good time to stop, just reconnect, start again, and realize it's it's just restlessness, distractedness, not connecting. You can actually make a collection of all your meta-models. But we really need to be open to all the the cycles of our practice. goes through cycles, it goes through ups and downs. There are times when we're quite calm and concentrated, and then times when there's energy and restlessness. It's all okay. It can all be worked with (laughs) when we're open to it, when we just accept it for what it is. The last of these difficulties that I'll talk about tonight is perhaps the most insidious. It's doubt. It undermines everything we do because when doubt is present, we doubt everything. There's there's no foundation anymore. We doubt ourselves, 
we doubt the practice, we doubt the teachers, you know, who, what are they, who do they, who are they to sit up there, what do they know about this? And this practice, I mean, it can seem like a really strange kind of practice. It can seem kind of selfish, you know, that we're just directing all this attention in the beginning, especially to ourselves. What about everyone else? It can seem kind of soppy. As someone said today, I feel like I'm living in a Hallmark card, you know, <laughs> where it's all light and love and, you know, this is some sort of unreality. It's not a reality. All of these kinds of thoughts can come up, you know. What's the point of, how does this work? How does sitting here saying these phrases actually do anything for me? These are all very justifiable thoughts to have. But the most important thing is just to recognize them for what they are. It's the force of doubt. And for some of us it may be very familiar, for others we may know it so clearly. It's actually a very essential part of our experience of our practice. We certainly wouldn't want you to sit here and just accept everything we say without (coughs) investigating for yourself or connecting in your own experience to the practice. We need to question and say, is this working for me? How does this work for me? What's this all about? As I said um, to people in the interviews today, questioning the phrases was really very insightful for me when I practiced. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be safe? I think this is, these are actually fruitful uh, areas of inquiry, not to spend huge amounts of time on this or to write endless journal notes, but just to know for yourself, to inquire into it, to, to see for yourself. Also, we can just reconnect with our original uh, intention in practice. You know, at some point in the distant past, you thought it was a good idea to come on a metta retreat. (laughs) You may be reconsidering this at this moment, but at some point there was that intention. What was that? Get in touch with that. You know, reconnect with that original intention. And definitely talk to us about it. Don't, don't be shy to bring up your doubts and your hesitations. It's why we're here. As I say, it's a very important part of the practice to do this. So you come to know and trust for yourself that this works. But it does require, this practice requires a lot of faith and trust. We're sitting up here telling you, say these phrases and something will happen. You say, how do I know? You know, that's exactly what I felt. And all we can say is, please trust us. We've all practiced in this way and found it to be amazingly powerful and beneficial. And not just us. The Buddha taught this practice. And for 2,500 years, people all over the world have been practicing it and benefiting from it and transforming their hearts and minds. So it will require some some trust and some faith. But the most important place to trust and have faith in is your own internal experience your own understanding. I remember another time my teacher gave me another instruction, you know, changed it a little, said, why don't you try this? And it was interesting, this fear and doubt immediately came up. What if nothing happens? And then it was immediately followed by, but what if I get overwhelmed? And I had to stop and think, how can these two opposing doubts appear? You know, it doesn't work that they both uh, are there at the same time. But that's what our mind does. It always looks to undermine us or to to find the difficulty. We just have to notice that that's what's happening and reconnect and come back in. 
because faith is actually an incredibly important part of our practice, even of our lives. I'd like to read um, a little prayer, actually, from one of my favorite philosophers. It's actually an Australian cartoonist called Michael Lunig. It's about spring, but I think it applies in any season. We celebrate spring's returning and the rejuvenation of the natural world. Let us be moved by this vast and gentle insistence that goodness shall return, the warmth and, that warmth and life shall succeed, and help us to understand our place within this miracle. Let us see that as a bird now builds its nest, bravely with bits and pieces, so we must build human faith. It is our simple duty. It is the highest art. It is our natural and vital role within the miracle of spring, the creation of faith. So I hope that here at Spirit Rock, in the beauty of nature, that you share a little in the creation and the miracle of nature that's built on faith and trust, the movement of the seasons. So metta practice inevitably confronts us with these places that we're blocked or limited. We all have this strong desire for connection, for openness, for being present. But often what we experience is the limitation or the closing down, the worry, the irritation. Being open to that too being open to whatever is our experience, the way things are right now, is so important in this practice. Without getting locked in that, without defining ourselves by that experience, is what is freeing. We need to bring an attitude of metta to the experience of difficulty, so that the practice comes together, makes this integrated whole of the difficulty and holding it with the meta-feeling. We can also deliberately cultivate the opposite of the limiting forces in the mind. With greed, we can cultivate generosity or renunciation. With anger, we can cultivate, as we're doing here, kindness and metta, patience and tolerance. With restlessness, we cultivate calm and faith. Uh, sorry, calm and peace and concentration. And that's what we're doing here. We're actually in the metta practice. It's a wonderful antidote to the restlessness. For sleepiness, we cultivate interest. We try to be interested in what's happening. We bring energy to our practice and investigation. And for doubt, we cultivate faith, just as I said. But sometimes the main thing we need to do is just be a little kinder to ourselves. And the final step is often just letting it be, whatever the experience is, to realize that our practice isn't about getting rid of these experiences, but coming into a deep and profound acceptance of this is the way things are. Because freedom doesn't come from getting rid of these states but learning to understand them and work with them and open to them. Because acceptance is a huge part of our metta practice. 
Acceptance is the way we're kind to ourselves. It's the way we practice metta towards ourselves. <clears throat> so I'd like to finish with one of my favorite poems that talks about, or shows how metta, the experience of connection, is available anytime we open ourselves to the world, and how metta dissolves boundaries, and if we let it, it'll even dissolve ourselves. It's called A Blessing by James Wright. Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota, twilight bound softly forth on the grass, and the eyes of those two Indian ponies darken with kindness. They have come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me. We step over the barbed wire into the pasture where they have been grazing all day alone. They ripple tensely. They can hardly contain their happiness that we have come. They bow shyly as wet swans. They love each other. There is no loneliness like theirs. At home once more, they begin munching the young tufts of spring in the darkness. I would like to hold the slenderer one in my arms, for she has walked over to me and nuzzled my left hand. She is black and white. Her mane falls wild on her forehead, and the light breeze moves me to caress her long ear that is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly I realize that if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. So let's just sit together for a moment. I'll end with another prayer from Lunig. Love one another and you will be happy. It's as simple and as difficult as that. There is no other way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.